Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to Gen Z. Gen Z is Generation Crypto. These are the people who were raised on a different philosophy on how they look at money, how they look at identity, how they look at privacy, and how they reimagine their relationships with the communities and companies they interact with. We focus on how Web2 and Web3 brands are building for these audiences. I'm Sam Ewan from Coindesk, and our co-host is Avery Akinini from Vayner3. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Generation Crypto, Gen C, here with Avery Akinini, as always. Really excited to see you. How are you doing? I am doing great. How are you doing, Sam? Happy Thursday. Yeah, it's it's been a Thursday. Wait, is it? Th- no, it's Wednesday. Oh. <laughs> Happy Wednesday, then. <laughs> Even though it's only Wednesday, I know everybody's about to head out on their Passover or Easter breaks. I'm very excited for the guests that we have today. We have Ryan Watts, a.k.a. Fwiz is his handle on social. I assume that's a gamer name of some form or fashion. So I'm really stoked for this. Ryan was an early streamer and had an amazing career as the global head of gaming at YouTube before he joined Polygon. So I'm super interested to understand, one, his role today, but like what brought him from probably a pretty juicy role over at YouTube into Web3. So that's going to be exciting. Just to cover some of the most recent stories, Avery, luxury continues to come to Web3. We talked about Gucci recently. We talked about Porsche a couple of weeks ago. It was announced this week, Asprey Studio, which is a kind of, they make beautiful objects, partnered with Bugatti, the car company. What's really interesting about this NFT launch, there's 111 objects, but they're launching on Bitcoin, right? They're launching a Bitcoin Ordinals project, which I think we talked a little bit about Ordinals before, but it's kind of Bitcoin's version of the NFTs. These are starting between twenty dollars and $50,000, and 11 of them are going to go for $200,000. They come with this intricate sort of 3D physical object that's made of carbon fiber, and it looks like a royal egg, if you will. They open up, and there's a detailed scene that includes a Bugatti in it. And I guess it's going to be really interesting to watch. What is your thought on, one, more luxury coming to the market at such a high price point? We also saw, what was it, Gucci and Yuga, I think, did something this week. but also. Is it too insider to go on Bitcoin ordinals because it is a relatively new construct that's come to Web3? Yeah, so there's a lot in that question. Let's first start off by Bugatti is beautiful. Asprey Studio is beautiful. The particular NFTs are digital Fabergé eggs. They are stunning, just visually, clearly very crafted, and they look really nice. 
It's funny because we were actually exploring doing an ordinals project with one of our brand partners who's done a lot in this space. We ended up not doing it for the reason of not wanting to overly commercialize in this kind of a market. This is not a luxury brand that I'm referring to, but we decided against it after a lot of like, it would have been a cool idea, it would have been culturally relevant. And I think that ordinals is a thing that we probably talked about like a month or so ago. And we're like, oh, this is a hot trend and it's still kicking. And one brand was going to get into ordinals and it seems like it is Bugatti and Asprey. And I believe they're working with Onchain Monkey on this as well. It's kind of a collaborative partner. Onchain Monkey is very native to Bitcoin. I think that, you know, a lot of their community is kind of Bitcoiners. So I think that makes sense. It's kind of cool to be the first, you know, doing an inscription. It's a different process for anyone who's not familiar with like ordinals than, you know, typical sort of Ethereum mint. But yeah, I think it's kind of interesting. I think the price point is expensive and, you know, that's in keeping with like what's on brand for Bugatti and Asprey and luxury. I think 111 is a small enough number that it is insider. It's intentionally insider. Anything Bugatti does is insider, right? Like you and I can't afford a Bugatti, unfortunately, yet. And I think that that's almost by design as they're doing these really small batches. What I think is interesting and cool about what they're doing, one is they're continuing to do something that pushes the boundaries of cultural relevance. And they're moving quickly for a brand like Bugatti to be already doing something like this, kind of riding a trend is impressive. And they're also sharing it from their main handle. Sam, you know, I have a big passion around Web3 cannot operate in a silo if it's going to be a real thing that marketers care about. It can't be like off to the side. It needs to be integrated as part of like core marketing initiatives and brand programming and also brand funding and on brand social handles. So I like that they're sharing this from their main handles. I like that they're making this part of a thing that they're communicating, not some little side project that is getting pushed through like a licensed deal. So I'm going to give Bugatti a shout out for this. I will not be inscribing one, but I will be sharing them on. I agree with everything that you said. I also think there's something about heritage brands going to Bitcoin. That's a kind of nice tie-in of an older, more legacy brand that is going to the original chain. I guess my one question is, is it too insider crypto? Like, are you expanding the Bugatti brand anymore? Put on your brand hat. Is the intention that this, in some respects, sells more cars down the road? Or is it vice versa, that we are getting car owners into a new luxury item? I think the intention, if I were the CMO of Bugatti, would be to sell more cars down the road and appeal to the type of ultra high net worth individual who has a lot of Bitcoin. That makes sense. Because they might convert some of said Bitcoin to buy Bugatti. Yeah, we don't know if Bugatti accepts Bitcoin, but we should check that out. They don't yet, but maybe they will. On the topic of precious items, there's a story I was reading yesterday. The British Museum is having a fight with Greece, the country. And because they have these Parthenon sculptures called Parthenon marbles that they did legally obtain. What I thought was really interesting about the story was what they decided to do. There are other, I think the Vatican also had some of these and did return them to Greece. The British Museum said, nah, we're not going to do that. But what they then said was, we will create an NFT, we'll scan these, and we will send those to you to prove provenance comes from Greece. And so I just thought it was interesting about this in the same way that like Tezos is putting car titles on chain is just the idea around utilizing blockchain technology purely as a source of provenance. I think it's a functional use case. Of course, like the devil's advocate is like, but how can they ensure these are always together? What about if they could get divorced, the NFT versus the physical object? But I love any utilization of NFTs as a utility play, as a non-financially transaction-oriented play. So I love it. I think it's super smart. It might even be our favorite non-word, the P word. Don't say it. Some might call it a connected product. 
So yeah. Art as a connected object. And I continue to believe that like there's such a place for Web3 and blockchain technology in the art industry because of just the level of fraud that happens all the time, like every single day in that world. And to your point, I mean, really what this is, is they're just doing validation, right? They're saying we have this giant marble object that it's very hard to move, but we're going to fully scan it. We're going to kind of treat that as provenance, give that to Greece so that Greece can say we are the originators of this object. I don't think Greece is happy. I think they want the statues back versus a JPEG, but that'll be a fight for another day. Finally, Avery, this week, New York City, big site for a political moment. Donald Trump was indicted. And whether you are pro-Trump or not sort of doesn't matter for this podcast. But what was interesting to me was Trump cards, which there are, I think, 16,000 or something of them out there, have done $25 million in aftermarket value. They're kind of a collectible for the MAGA community, as well as, frankly, some NFT gens who have been flipping them for a while. Someone created a Trump criminal card version, which was just taking the same artwork and putting him behind bars, putting him in an orange jumpsuit. And these were an unauthorized product. But just the idea of cultural moments coming on chain, I thought was just sort of an interesting thing to talk about. And I would love to hear your take on what happens when public moments, these newsworthy moments, become minted in history on the blockchain. I feel like it could have been like a POAP. Like I was there for the Trump indictment in New York City. We've already seen the blockchain sort of serve as this public ledger, public history book in a lot of ways. And I also think the reality of human beings are people are going to commercialize at every opportunity. I'm sure people were selling t-shirts down. I think it was near World Trade, right? I was actually down there yesterday for some client stuff. And I was expecting there to be a lot of traffic. There wasn't, but there was just people, you know, selling random stuff that was related to this. And I think the same, like Web3 and blockchain is just another format for people to express themselves. And that also means commercializing every which little thing. So cultural relevance matters. It matters in marketing. It matters in business. And they'll see the right thing and capture that. And who knows, that could have taken off. In the Web3 community, this native community, People love like fresh updates. Like there's always something new to mid. There's always something new trending. And I think the person who created that Behind Bars collection probably just had a good understanding of what people in the Web3 space want. They want something culturally relevant. They want something a little bit of meme and then they lean into it. It's not necessarily logical. Not logical, but I do think does talk a lot about our current culture of anything can be a tradable asset, right? And so the idea that just cultural value. I mean, the fact this week, Elon Musk changed the Twitter logo to the Doge dog for a bunch of people. And that saw a pump in Dogecoin. I don't know if he's trying to sort of get Dogecoin up in value so it can pay off his Twitter debt. But there's something around just the meme value of people are paying attention. Attention has value. Let's put a kind of monetary price around that. These Trump criminal cards, there's about $18,000 in aftermarket activity in them, which, you know, not a lot, but someone who probably spent, you know, 20 minutes putting some jumpsuits on Trump, probably had a nice little payday. This is a myth about Web3. People are always like, oh, you did that in an hour. I'm like, oh, you had no idea how long that took. I bet they spent more than 20 minutes, but you know, good on them. Get your hustle on. All right. We're going to come back after the break with Ryan Wyatt, president of Polygon Labs. Really excited to talk about what Polygon is doing. And we'll see you after the break. Join Coindesk's Consensus 2023, where Web3 meets IRL, happening April 26th through 28th in Austin, Texas. Consensus is the industry's only event bringing together all sides of crypto, Web3, and the metaverse. Immerse yourself in all that blockchain technology has to offer marketers, advertisers, brand leaders, creators, builders, founders, entrepreneurs, and more. 
Use code GENC to get 15% off your pass. Visit coindesk.com slash consensus or check the link in the show notes. All right, everyone, we are here with Ryan Wyatt, president of Polygon Labs. Ryan was also global head of gaming at YouTube for many years. Ryan, super excited to have you on the podcast. We have talked about Polygon a million times, so I think it's really important to not only highlight what you guys are doing, but, you know, there's sort of no one, I think, in the last year that has onboarded more folks into Web3 than you guys at Polygon. First, I would love to just like get your backstory of what got you to Polygon, what you're doing beforehand, and what's so interesting about the blockchain to you. Yeah, so quick background. I played games competitively and streamed them when I was in college. Realized I had to go get a real job afterwards because streaming wasn't a big thing, nor was esports at the time. This is like circa 2008. And so I became enamored with the creator economy space and what that could become. And so I set forth on that voyage. Worked with a company called Major League Gaming, which was acquired by Activision Blizzard later in life. Another company called Machinima. And ultimately, that led me to be the first head of gaming at YouTube and was fun. I got to join YouTube in 2014, still early days for YouTube got to see us go through a lot of challenges and opportunities and the growing pains of scaling and what that means and just really enjoyed building that out. Gaming ended up being the second biggest vertical on YouTube, generates billions of dollars each year through ad revenue and non-ads for people that are watching gaming videos on the platform for both VOD and live streaming. I'm a huge gamer. And so for me, one thing that really got me into the space was just digital ownership. You know, I never really read like a Bitcoin white paper that changed my life and entered in the space. And like, that's, you know, a different journey for most, but I really got fascinated by, you know, having this like public ledger where you can own items and actually putting them on these distributed systems being so much more better for a million reasons that we can talk about. So what ended up happening, I just, you know, I started angel investing. I started advising in the space, but it really didn't like scratch that itch where I had to commit full time. And so I made the tough decision to leave a really awesome role at YouTube and go to Polygon. And so came into Polygon. I'm the president at Polygon Labs. Polygon Labs is the contributor team for the protocol Polygon. So we are one of many groups that are really contributing to Polygon, but the core contributor group, much like Solana Labs is with Solana or Ava Labs with Avalanche. And so it's been fun to come over, scale that team out. I've been here almost a little under a year and a half now, learn a lot about like what works in Web 2 versus Web 3, what doesn't work, how you apply things versus how you don't, the growing pains that come with the space. And it's been a wild ride. And honestly, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. It's been certainly a crazy, chaotic run externally in the macro as I've been here, but I've really enjoyed being at Polygon and seeing you know, how the space has grown alongside it. So you were streaming back in the day. What was your game? I played Call of Duty the most. Ironically, I was one of the first partnered streamers ever on Twitch, which was cool because the idea that you could stream video games and start making money from it was like very nascent at the time. You know, It was Justin TV and Ustream and some of these others that were really trying to do it. Justin TV had just pivoted into Twitch. I streamed on Justin TV. It was fun. I did it with some of the buddies I live with. You know, we would be drinking and playing Call of Duty and it was really fun. You know, at the time it was, you never thought it would get as big as it was going to get. And even when I went and started working at YouTube, I never thought we'd grow from, you know, 20 million gamers to 400 and some million logged in users watching gaming. That was a fun ride to be a part of. But yep, Call of Duty is my game. You have the history in gaming and sports. You know, besides Polygon, it feels like there is a lot of synergy between kind of the mindset of gaming, sports, like this fandom. We had DraftKings on the pod a while ago, and there are certain verticals that seem just more comfortable getting into blockchain because I think they understand both 
rewarding creators in the way like you were a streamer and like fans probably were like sort of vibing off what you were doing. Twitch certainly had that whole ecosystem of how you can sort of like show love back to the streamers. Is there some insight that you have about why that mindset specifically within sports and gaming seems to work well within Web3? I would always say that like gamers, even we saw this at YouTube, are like early adopters of all kind of new products. I think they're just tend to be a little bit more like technically savvy. So I have always found, you know, when we launched a lot of our products on the YouTube gaming side, they were products that adopted by gaming creators, but became like really broadly applicable by all creators. So, you know, channel level memberships, digital goods, all the different things that were launched. It's also a behavior that's really already built in for gamers, kind of to your point. A great example is I play Counter-Strike, a game all the time. And yesterday I actually was just like buying, you know, crates to open up and, you know, you get skins in them and so forth and you pay money to buy a crate. Then you pay money to buy a key to open the crate. Then you randomly get a skin that's inside of that. And then it's cool because they're probably the most Web3 that's not, right? So you can see on the marketplace that they have how much these skins are worth. You can see how much they've been selling for over a period of time. I can place it on the market to sell. I can buy items on the market as well. But there's a couple different problems with it where like Web3 would be perfect, right? So the first, if you look at it, is that money stays inside the ecosystem, right? So like if I you know, sell you my skin, Sam, and I get 20 bucks back for that, I have to spend it inside of Steam. I can't turn that into 20 US dollars and like go put it back in my bank account, which is a big conundrum, right? Two, I don't know the scarcity of these items. So you might have this item. I understand how the market is pricing it based off of previous purchases of it, but I don't know if there's a thousand. I don't know if Counter-Strike's gonna one day do a box where millions are in them and all of a sudden that's gonna drop down to like five cents because of the supply. And so there's not enough transparency there. They've created something that's pretty robust being on like a centralized database. The minute you start to actually pull this stuff off, and here's a good example too, they actually shut it, actively shut this down there were companies that were building on top of it where they would basically hold the item in escrow. We could then off the platform, make the trade. That trade, they would get a percentage fee. It's how they would run the company and we would swap and I'd get actual cash. They shut all that stuff down. So it's actually even like very anti-Web3 in the sense that it's like, we don't actually want you to have full ownership of it. We want you to keep this money inside of our markets, inside of our ecosystem so that it's like a wall garden so that we actually own the weapons. We actually own the money that's happening and being transmitted inside of it. So they're almost there, right? Like they have really cool idea of how to give a player more autonomy over the purchasing power that they have. Think of basically now putting these things on chain as like the next level of user ownership. So all of a sudden, now that same game is on chain. I can see how many of it is. I can lend it to you. I can trade it to you. I can sell it to you. I can rent it to you. I can do whatever I want. And ultimately, at the end of the day, when you abstract all the crypto jargon, all of this like technical, you know, nuanced conversation, this idea that you have something that is owned by the people, like not to be cheesy, but like peer to peer owned by the people, and that everything that is purchased, the money you spent sits over on this network versus somewhere else, you actually have more ownership autonomy. And at the end of the day, when you see that $100 billion are being spent on digital goods instead of games today, you see that going up and to the right with no indication that that's going to slow down. You start to realize that over time, people are going to want more autonomy, right? Like if I buy this Nike hoodie, I should be able to do whatever I want with it, give it away, throw it away, sell it on StockX. I bought it. It's not Nike's hoodie anymore, right? And so you're going to just see that be a natural expectation of digital purchases that you already see in the physical world. And the best way to do that is going to be on chain. So you can have these faux Web3 structures, like what I just outlined with Counter-Strike, 
they mimic behaviorally a lot of things of what we're talking about. But two, they actually don't do the things that you need to do. And really, they just continue to be a wall garden of ownership. And so you need to be able to move these items into these public systems because like, you need the transparency and accountability and genuine ownership where like, it can't be corporate control. And you see brands interacting with that who are kind of first movers that get this idea of like skating to where the puck is going, if you will. And so that's my long spiel on it of like why I got in. And, you know, I had played Counter-Strike since I was 14 years old, right? You know, like I literally, I'm like 36 now. So I've been playing that game for 20 some years. It's a game that's near and dear to me. I love it to death. I play it like every other day, but it's a great example of what needs to happen in the evolution of like digital ownership with how much money is being spent. Right. That's so interesting. And I love the gamer sort of connect. It's something that I don't think our listeners have heard yet on Gen C at least. And, you know, finally we have a guest that talks even faster than me. So I'm personally excited for that too. Yeah. So enter Polygon. You're wearing your purple hoodie right now. Tell us a little bit about Polygon for those who may not be as familiar with exactly what Polygon is and what it does. And then the relationship sort of that your team has with the chain. Yeah, so basically you have this protocol called Ethereum where they allow dApps to be built and smart contracts to be built. So they allow this idea that like apps and stuff can be built on top of it. The problem is in order for that to stay highly secure, it has high transaction costs. And it has to always stay that way because that is fundamentally what is required in order for it to maintain its integrity of security. So then you have this dilemma where it's like, if I wanna have an app built on top of a protocol, and it's really high cost for transactions. I'm selling a $4 weapon skin. I can't have it a dollar or $2 or three, let alone 40 or $50 transaction cost. I was going to say one or two or three in 2021 would have been nice. Exactly. Right. So we're stuck in this dilemma that will always persist because maintaining the security of Ethereum is really important. And hence, you'll always have these high transaction costs. So then basically this idea of what they call layer twos became out of how do you actually do this in a way where, yeah, maybe you trade off some semblance of security, but you now can kind of subsidize transaction costs in a way that's like really manageable and scalable, but also keeping the programming language exactly the same as the base layer. In comes Polygon. So basically what Polygon allows is a really, really friendly way to build apps, creator experiences, projects, whatever you want to do, and everybody's doing everything on it. So there's a variety of things we can touch in there. And do it in a way that's like easy to deploy, easy to run, scalable with like transaction costs that are under a cent. And that's really what Polygon's kind of been, you know, out there. That's what it's known as. And it's the leading basically scaling protocol for building on top of Ethereum. It is known for that. And I think in the context of our listeners, many would know that Polygon is sort of the preferred chain for a lot of brands. You know, I run a company, we do a lot of work with brands in this space and we use a lot of Polygon. I think your BD team is on fire, of course, led by you. Thank you. Can you talk a little bit about you know, that process of working with top brands from Starbucks to Nike to Immutable to DraftKings to Leagues of Kingdoms? You and the team have clearly spent a lot of time and effort building and cultivating these relationships. Can you talk about the beginnings of how this all came to life and maybe your thesis on why Polygon is such a great fit for enterprises who are looking to enter this space? both in the gaming ecosystem and more sort of traditional corporates? Yeah, a couple of things. You know, Polygon Labs, we've been able to set up a team that's very conducive to working with large enterprise and, you know, Web3 native projects. So if you look at kind of the team that's been assembled, you've got a variety of backgrounds of really hardcore Web3 endemics. You know, they've been in the space for years. 
They read the Bitcoin white paper, changed their life. Like they're all about it. They understand DeFi. They understand how to build a decentralized protocol. And then you marry that group with those who have kind of a little bit more of my background, where it was like, wasn't with crypto, wasn't in blockchain, became enamored and fascinated by it, like have built and have gone through the one to 100 challenges at large corporations, whether it's Google or Meta or Unity and Amazon and all these different places that we pulled together. And so we were able to kind of put these two groups together. Obviously, they learn a tremendous amount from each other, right? Like there's appetite to learn from both of these different groups inside of Polygon Labs, because I think both groups offer something really compelling. And so you basically, that has been like a compounding effect. So it started where is like, how do you get everybody aligned? How do you establish this culturally? How do you actually build a mission around these different backgrounds and get people to work together and backgrounds from like job and diversity and where they're at geographically and their expertise and so forth. And so that basically really became a multiplier for us where we set up an organization very similar to how the team, you know, I set up at YouTube. There's a BD team, a BD team goes into an engineering solutions team that helps you onboard the protocol and then ultimately goes to a partner success team to ensure that you know you're happy with where things are at moving forward. And so a lot of this was how do you build this team and then how do you scale it, right? Because you can't just keep growing alongside of it. In fact, with these decentralized protocols, your goal is to actually wind down over a period of time because you have other really meaningful contributors. Like Immutable is you know, one of the biggest now contributors to the Polygon platform moving forward with that. And we could talk about that later. And so I think we really uniquely set up the team very early on and we're able to kind of take all of these great individuals that were already at Polygon and like, how do you bolster that lineup? And I think that's resonated really well with a lot of the companies that are building, whether they're big enterprise gaming or Web3 natives. And so, yeah, I think we're going to continue to kind of focus on doing that. And I think we've got now a really great product that is married with that team. So I think that's where we really started to hit momentum. Yeah, I agree. And it's funny because, you know, a lot of brands will be used to like, hey, I'm going to RFP so-and-so. They're like, I'm going to RFP Ethereum and Polygon. It's like, that's not exactly how it works. Um, but I think your team has also been incredible at sort of the service and the handholding and the explaining why and explaining the differentiators, which, you know, isn't necessarily easy, right? When brands are looking to sort of explore and understand what a bunch of different companies do. Polygon can actually like work with a lot of different vendors. It's not something that is really a standalone type thing, though I know some brands even have their own nodes, which is really kind of cool. Yeah, exactly. I think DraftKings might have one as well. Yeah. We had Adam Brotman on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. And he said, ownership is the unlock for Starbucks, which I thought was just like such a great thing to talk about from such a big brand level at Starbucks. It's what you were just describing so deeply in the gaming arena. When you look at a Starbucks or a Nike or Immutable, and I know you've also worked with a lot of traditional gaming companies these days, what are they getting excited about? Because to some degree, this challenges some old business thinking, but it also unlocks so much community opportunity, so much relationship opportunity. And then the stuff you can do with creators is also really incredible. What do you feel that some of these big partnerships are bringing to the table that gets them so excited to come into Web3? Because we know it's experimental, but Starbucks, which is the largest e-commerce app outside of Apple in the world, looking to reimagine their loyalty system, like that's pretty exciting and also pretty daring. What's that conversation like for you? New tech is like inherently tinkering and discovering and figuring out how to experiment in the space. And so, yeah, I think all the brands are going to fall into that category. But then you look at something like Starbucks and obviously, you know, Adam, I'm sure spoke at length about it, but they've got a really big vision around it. And I do think that common thread is ownership, you know, like people don't know what they don't know yet. Right. And so it goes back to like, you know, the very cliche of asking for faster horses than a car kind of thing. And that might be a little bit of hyperbole here, no doubt. But 
I think a lot of people, they look at the current space and be like, what do I need to do? Like, what's so problematic? Why do I need more ownership? And that's okay, right? You would expect 99.9% .9 of people on any like technological innovation to think that way, right? And so I think what has to happen now is really interesting use cases that come out. Loyalty and rewards is a great example and all the things that our Starbucks are doing where they're like, oh, okay, I get that. Like, basically, because I have it here, I actually have more ownership and I can do X, Y, and Z. And it's actually a little bit more unique as far as the physical experiences, the digital experiences. And I actually own this item that I worked hard for or paid for, whatever. And so I think that's been kind of a common thread. So if you look at, you know, Nike, what they're trying to do, it's like working with creators to establish basically digital designs, how they work together, how that kind of can unlock like physical and digital experiences. What can then Nike go do working with other brands or like other games or other universes? If you own this like digital shoe, can I actually have a version of that in that game and so forth? So I think what people are realizing on the brand side is there's this really unique way for it to be interoperable and in a lot of different things. I even think of like Starbucks as a cool example and not even implying that they're going this way. But if you go in and like all of your almond milk latte purchases are on chain, and then all of a sudden you go to Whole Foods with that same wallet, maybe you can get a discount on almond milk. Like very interesting things that you are able to like make transparent in that connection. It's like an evolution of authentication, right? So it's like, oh, here's my wallet. I have all these things in it. And you can still maintain privacy. I don't want to get too technical with like zero knowledge and so forth. But basically, you can establish a connection to Whole Foods where they can look at all of those almond milk latte purchases that you've purchased and give you that discount without you having to make all that stuff available to the world as well, too. So like a balance of what's transparent and public versus what's private is really important as well, too. But yeah, I think people start to see these worlds of like digital ownership and interconnectivity happening more and more. I think we're moving at a pretty quick pace to Polygon, but I think people are going to realize this sooner than later, to be honest with you. And even at GDC, biggest game developers conference in the world, I went March last year and I just left, you know, YouTube, Google, and only been at Polygon a couple months. And people were just absolutely destroying it. They were like, this is stupid. This is stupid. This is so silly. It's not going to work. Then we had this like recent GDC with Immutable, then Nexon, one of the largest game publishers in the world, announced that they're building a Polygon, CCP, which is one of the most respected game publishers in the world with EVE Online, legendary game. They announced too. And now all of a sudden people are like, oh, shit, I think I'm actually starting to get it. It's not just monkeys that sell for $250,000 that Jimmy Fallon pumped. It's actually real use cases here. And so I'm starting to see like it's clicking in more and more people's heads. First of all, shots fired. Accurate though. <laughs> Accurate for sure. You hit on something that we talk about consistently, which is the interoperability of communities. The fact that people who drink Starbucks also wear Nikes, also play games, and that we shouldn't be thinking those as distinct, which I think so many loyalty programs are really sort of walled off. But the fact that, as you put it, the almond latte story of Whole Foods and Starbucks is actually a synergy, not a barrier. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's a big step of jumping over a wall garden for both users and obviously the corporations as well. Because instinctively, we've learned that the company wants to be wall guarded as users, we're just going to be beholden to it. So whether you go in and it's the 30% transaction fees from the Apple Store, or Google Play, or you're not owning actual like the skins that you purchase, it's a license. We forever have just bowed down and been like, that's cool. Whatever big corporations. And I think people are starting to become a little bit more like cognizant and resistant to that. While at the same time, these like wall guarded approach on the corporations are being tested more and more by both the people, by the governments, by corporations themselves to be like, how do we think bigger? There's so much bigger opportunity out there. And so 
a lot of things that are happening that one, the space controls, but also variables that are happening outside of it that naturally have to occur over progress of time. And so a lot of these things are happening simultaneously and in parallel. Ryan, you mentioned that you are starting to see a click for you know people at GDC, which I think is an important recognition for yourself being so in the space. It's starting to click across like my worlds too. People are starting to see it. And it's interesting they're actually seeing it at a time when like the pricing has come down a lot because I think there's like crazy high pricing just puts on like off alarm bells. Like that's people's natural reaction. Do you think wallets are part of the reason that's clicking? Is that the unlock or is that the barrier? It's a little bit of both, actually. Like, I think it's a couple of things. I think as it starts to click for people where they're like, yeah, cool. Putting some of this stuff on these public protocols, right? Where it's no longer like sitting in some kind of wall garden environment, but it's out on these public protocols. What does that exactly mean for me? And then you start to get that the way that you can actually truly own things is in a way where it's on a network that isn't owned by a company, right? Polygon is just a protocol. It's built on it. It's the people that you know, stake and validate the network and the transactions are the authoritative voice for the protocol, right? We basically launch blockchain software and give it away to the world, right? And the world takes it over. And so like when these things are on these like public open systems, you can start to build different things and you don't need, not everything needs to be on it, right? But now you have this like product feature of the internet that you can build on. So cool. Okay. People are starting to get, it's better to actually just sit these things over here than to sit them in some like closed wall garden database. Cool. Okay. Well, now what makes sense to actually put on there? And then you start to be like, okay, like digital goods, loyalty and rewards. You start to think about the categories. Obviously, financial systems and DeFi have already proven itself. I don't even think like we need to spend time on that. So there's now real use cases of this like new product feature of the internet. Well, how do you onboard that? A wallet, right? Your first interaction with these like open systems is a wallet. Now that's daunting because we were like, okay, what is this? What is it? Seed phrase, MetaMask, what a Coinbase, all this. Shit. It is scary. It is daunting. And the user journey is really bad. But think about where it was a year ago and where it is today. It's like a hundred times better already. And I am, that is not hyperbole. Like a year ago, it was awful. And so then you have like MetaMask has come a long way. You have Bitsky, you have Phantom, all these great wallets that are out there. There's too many, right? You'll have a consolidation of how many at the end. But now they're making it easier and easier and more intuitive and more intuitive to onboard. And so I think a year from now, they're absolutely like the catalyst that really helps onboard people because they create frictionless onboarding, which has been a huge, huge barrier to entry for Web3. And you'll start to see that then seamlessly where you're like easily integrating my wallet on Starbucks, on you know, my games that I play, on my Nike app, on you know, the MasterCard program that I'm doing, like boom, 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 boom. And all of a sudden that, those worlds become like really interconnected and fluid. So we're close on that. I mean, again, the wallet experience is like day and night from 12 months ago. Yeah, absolutely. You and I were talking before we started on a little bit going into Web3 gaming. I'm very bullish on Web3 gaming being kind of what brings the next big wave of folks into crypto. They may not even know they're in crypto when they are, but it really feels like there's a lot of energy there that just I haven't seen before. And I would just love to, you know, you come from the gaming world. What's your take on traditional gaming coming into Web3 and would love your sort of insight on are we going to see a breakout hit in the Web3 gaming space that goes traditional? Yeah, a couple of things. I think one, this like digital ownership model, immediately your first reaction as a large game publisher is that this disrupts my business. And I think what they're starting to see is this actually can be net positive to my business and can actually do more from a revenue standpoint, as well as do more for users, right? So win-win. We make more money, users are happier and have more ownership. We can do these things. And so there's starting to be this understanding of this. 
there's like a very particular category and it's this free to play category or games as a service category or whatever you want to call it, right? This idea where you like get the game for free and then they're going to keep building and iterating on the game over time, right? And you buy season passes, battle passes, digital cosmetics, like that's how you contribute to the game. And those business models are built very simply on people with money and people with time. It's not that much more complicated. And so people with money are going to be the ones that push very hard on this ownership thing moving forward. And they will then, the game publishers will be beholden to them. Now, whether they create a faux Web 2.5 experience a la Steam and Counter-Strike like we already talked about, or just embrace Web 3 and what you can do with ownership and liquidity and all of that, a lot of what I always look to and have always looked to working in the games industry is look to the East, not the West. All great gaming trends come from the East. Mobile gaming, free to play. I mean, I could go on. And so then I look to then a company like Square Enix building on Polygon. I look at a company like Nexon building on Polygon, right? They are already ahead of it. And when you have these conversations about what's really the value of blockchains and games and all this stuff that is like deliberated in the West, it's like that shit is sale. They're like, we're doing it. We have teams. We understand it deeply. Like that Nexon team, it's not like we're holding their hands. They're like technical prowess. They get it deeply, very intuitively, like full game design, how they're going to do it, everything down. And so that's really what you should be focusing on. A lot of what you hear in the US is just still stuck on this like NFTs, you know, are scams, right? And so we'll get there. And like all things in the West, we like are able to react quickly and deploy quickly. So I think it'll be okay. But this is the trend that I'm seeing. And Western game publishers are smart. This whole like playbook of the East to the West is very well known, very well understood and very well mimicked for decades now. So that's why I think the attitude change. But it's those game models that will serve Web3 well. And then like what you can start to build, you can start to build like different things that are just going to be unique to games. But then there's a lot of games where it's like, it'll never make sense. Like God of War is this like, or Last of Us, like incredible game of the year, rich narrative experiences. That shit does not need to be on chain, right? It doesn't need to be a Web3 game. And so I think we also look at it in too binary of like, oh, games are all going Web3, all right? Like everything needs to be a crypto game. And so that's a big thing. And then I also think when you look towards the V1 games, they were like rudimentary financial first, effectively indirectly Ponzi schemes that we called like play to earn or something. That was real wild. This was like when I was joining the space. So I think this next wave of games, they're just good games, right? And the users are happy with the autonomy that they have in it. And that's the only way it'll work. Do you believe in the play to earn concept in general? Or do you think that, again, more traditional models are right? It's just like, depending on what you mean by that definition. Like, let me tell you a, I can play and earn model that makes sense. You, Sam, you launch a game, right? And I'm like one of the first thousand people to ever play the game. And I buy like a founder pass and I buy a couple digital skins in the game. And guess what? You're the next Riot Games. And those items that I bought in season one, where I was like one of the first thousand, like I have them, right? Like you can't go buy them now because you didn't play in season one. I was like an early adopter. Well, now you want to buy that founder pass that I spent 20 bucks on for two grand. Well, okay, I made money that way. Is that playing to earn? Like, sure, if that's your example. But a lot of the player to earn mechanics, basically more money needs to be coming in to fuel it, which is like definition of that, right? So like these Ponzi-nomic games are absolutely not what's going to work. It doesn't make any sense. And it's like very easy to look at like tokenomics or economy of a game and be like, yeah, that's not going to work. Might work for a couple of weeks, might work for a couple of years, but it's not going to work. And so I think games that are just really focused on like the core game mechanics, and obviously they have an economy as part of it, that's where you see things shine through. So Ryan, I actually also worked at Google for many, many years. And when I left to join Vayner, everybody thought I was insane. 
What did your old colleagues think when you said like, hey, I'm going to work at Polygon? Like, what was the reception coming from a place like YouTube where, like you mentioned, they have a lot of creator partnerships. I think YouTube's an incredible organization. What was the reaction? Like, had they even heard of Polygon? Yeah, I mean, I think pretty surprised. Like, I was one of the youngest directors at Google at 27 years old too, right? So I had a pretty good, like, setup for a career there. And they treated me great. I was loved being at Google. It was such a great relationship. So I think there's not been, to be honest and fair to them, there's really not a lot of things I would have ever left that role to go do. I think also they understand my personality of it when I have an itch that like, I think I've established that much of a relationship with Susan and Robert and the folks that were there while I was there, that they also understood me as well, where it's like, it's not as an individual crazy for Ryan to want to go like tackle something like this. So I think they appreciated the very like cavalier nature that I kind of brought into YouTube all the time as well, and maybe understood it from there. But yeah, I think a lot of it, you know, it's the moon to a lot of people at the time. And I think that was very surprising. But yeah, look, I think not to even be cliche, it just really doesn't matter what anybody thinks in the end of the day. Because I also think if I go back to the creator economy days, when I was like, hey, I think people are going to watch people play video games. Even like my gamer friends would be like, who wants to watch other people play video games? Dude, you're right? Like nobody wants to watch people play video games. People want to play them, right? And even I would be like, sometimes in self-doubt, I'd be like, man, I hated watching my brother play video games. I was always like, die so I can have the controller, you know? And so I doubted myself a lot, even through those moments. And even if you asked me at that time where I would be like, oh yeah, the next celebrities are going to be YouTube gaming creators and people like Mr. Beast and stuff. And they're going to, you know, be bigger than traditional celebrities. You've been like, you are literally crazy. You are crazy that people are going to watch people play video games. You're crazy to think that they're going to ever be so big that they're going to be deemed celebrities. And it turns out that way. And look, it maybe doesn't all work out, but I think the whole point is there was enough of this in this where I was like, hey, I think there are enough people like me, I don't know how many, that are into this, that find it interesting, that find the concept fascinating, that it'll be fun to go work in that and like figure that out, just like the creator economy stuff. And so it had, it mirrored so much behaviorally of those early days that it was really easy for me to jump in and actually not really give a shit, to be honest with you, about like any of it. And yeah, I think 99% of the people at Google probably are like, that dude is crazy for going and doing that. <laughs> we'll talk to them in a few years. We'll see. <laughs> but you know, one thing that I think is interesting to a lot of people who listen to this is maybe they're working a Fortune 500 company and they're like, hey, I'm really interested in this. I listen to Sam and Avery talk about it in this damn podcast with different guests. Like, what would be your advice to someone who's considering jumping into this space, you know, full time since you've done so in the recent past? Yeah, people are always like, it feels really risky, Ryan, to go do it. And I was like, mm, I don't know, does it? Like, I'm pretty sure if I wanted to go work at Google again or Facebook or Amazon, I could probably go work there again, right? With the background and resume that I have. So I felt like, what kind of risk are we talking about here, right? And then I also feel, I know this is cheesy, but so true. Like, life is so absurdly short and stuff. And so I just found like at YouTube Gaming, even with how amazing that role was, you know, the next year was starting it up. I'm like, this really looks like some of the previous years. It was like Bill Murray Groundhog Day, where I'm like, I'm going to run it back, same strategy, do the same thing, you know, and that's cool. It's safe, you know, it's good pay, but like, I'm so young still, I have a lot of energy to go do stuff, right? And so it really depends on what your situation is. Like, I don't look at it as such absolutes like, oh, you're at a Fortune 500, jump into Web3. But if you find yourself where you're like, I'm kind of doing the same stuff every day and I'm not like really progressing and I'm not mentally stimulating myself and I'm not challenging myself and I don't feel like I'm doing something passionate or something that I am passionate about, I just feel that there's a lot of opportunities to go out there and find that and go pursue it in general, whatever that field is. And it's much easier said than done. You know, as far as 
if you asked me before I had this like other scratching passion, I, I wouldn't have known where else I would go other than YouTube. And so also when it clicks, it clicks too, right? Like I knew this is it. I'm ready to roll. We're going to go do this. And so you want to be really measured in your approach on making the departure. But I think with a lot of the changes that we're seeing at these big tech companies, there is probably an opportune time if you can find that where maybe it's worth considering. Yeah. I mean, I think it's cliche, but like go follow your passion because like you clearly have so much passion for this stuff right now. And now is a great time to, you know, if a person's ready and they're exploring and they're taking their time to learn about Web3 to find a role to help sort of build the next big thing. Totally. You got to jump on it. Got to jump on it. Just do it. Yeah. It's like the quote, leap and the net will appear. You guys just at Polygon announced your zero knowledge mainnet launch. You mentioned zero knowledge earlier in the podcast. For our audience who may not be super up on what zero knowledge is and why it's like an important deal, can you sort of let us know what that is? Yeah. And this is the other thing too. Like people shouldn't have to worry about this stuff in the future, right? Like you don't ask questions about like Google Cloud versus AWS tech specs and why, which one's better, right? So anyway, the way to think about zero knowledge in like the most basic terms is this. You can prove something is true without knowing what's inside of it, right? And I won't get into like the technical details, but that's why it's called zero knowledge. It's basically, I know something to be true without having to know the context inside of it or the content inside of it rather. And so what that does is two things. One, it allows you to maintain a new element of privacy that didn't exist in crypto before or blockchains before. And two, it's able to take much less data. And so you can actually scale. And also because of this kind of arrangement with Ethereum and the zero knowledge rollup that they call them, you actually now can maintain more of that security that I talked about with Ethereum. So where you trade some of that off with Polygon now, you don't have to with a zero knowledge chain. And so this is kind of what it means in layman's terms. I'm grossly oversimplifying it, but for most folks, it's just you can take more volume of transactions because you need less of that data and you have this inherent level of privacy because you know the transaction to be true through cryptography and engineering, technical marvel and mathematics. Already over my head. So I guess finally, just you guys have had a tremendous year, tremendous career for yourself already within Polygon. What are you excited about in the year coming? And what are you guys working on with Polygon that our audience should know about? Well, yeah, I mean, look, we launched that ZKVM net, you know what, a couple of weeks ago. That was huge for us, right? Because that was a blocker for us to scale long term. So now that that's out, and look, we'll keep iterating on that. That's not flawless. We'll keep building on it, right? We intentionally launched it in beta, right? So that we can keep building it. Once that thing's out of beta, that's like, we now know we can just scale Polygon, right? So it goes back to just helping people on board in Web3, right? So like, that's what you can expect from us. With a big focus around Web3 native projects, there's so much capital that was deployed to crypto and Web3 companies over the last two years. We really have to make sure, although yes, we're getting this mass adoption, all the enterprises and games are building on Polygon. There's like wonderfully brilliant developers that are in this community that are funded by the A16s and the Lightspeeds and the Sequoias. And they, we need to help foster their building on Polygon as well. And so a big key emphasis in that. You saw with like Utes coming over as a project, whether it's leaning in the creator economy, whether it's leaning into Bitsky, which is a wallet that you know, supports Polygon. There's a lot of different amazing companies that we have to spend our time with. And so we can't lose sight of that group and spending time with that group. Because at the end of the day, although it's great to have the Nikes and MasterCards and Starbucks and all these big brands that have chosen Polygon, I think some of our biggest hits will come from Web3 native developers. And so we can't lose sight of that. That balance, the natives plus the newcomers. Everybody's welcome. Everybody's welcome on Polygon, which I love. It's a good mantra. Yeah. Right. Thank you so much for your time, your insights. Who needs a cup of afternoon coffee when they have a call or a podcast with you? <laughs> Bring it all day. 
I appreciate your energy and enthusiasm and it was great to hang. Thanks so much for making the time. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right, thanks, Ryan. I love Ryan, such a high energy dude. I love the fact that he has such an experience in gaming and can really bring that to what he's doing day to day in Polygon. It's like the original Vitalik challenge, why he created Ethereum. And I think about that all the time. So I loved having Ryan on. He's so high energy, he's so fun, and he brings that sort of big company understanding into what he's building at Polygon as like, I would say the preferred chain of most brands. How does it feel to talk to someone who has as much hustle as you have? (laughs) I feel like more. I wasn't a director when I was 27 at Google. I think I was just like a regular old level five. Um, So it was great to talk to him. Yeah, I thought that was fantastic. I know we've wanted to have Ryan on and agreed there isn't anyone who's building more with brands in the space. I do think, you know, we didn't ask him, but I think it's interesting because there are so many other chains now that are kind of trying to make partnerships with brands as sort of there's more of a democratization on the blockchain, you know, within like, let's say the EVM world. I just wonder if they can maintain their success because at their heels, there's so many other folks that are trying to also make those partnerships. I think there's such a network effect though, Sam, that's my belief, because I think early movers like embrace one partner and you do get a first mover advantage. The one thing that I wish we could have asked him that I probably wouldn't have been appropriate was sort of how some of the funding for some of these partnerships has worked. Because one thing I think a lot of marketers don't understand is a lot of these grants and sort of pay per you know, chain of choice, a lot of that happens across the ecosystem. And I would have been curious, sort of Brian's take on that. Is that just how this stuff works? Or, you know, is there anything that can be shared publicly? But obviously, we always want to be very respectful of our guests. Just one thing that's kicking around my head, because we get a lot of these like offers that I don't know. I don't know how that sits with me. Well, I guess what I wonder is one of the things I think Polygon does support a lot, and they're not the only ones, but they bring a lot of engineering muscle. So like where a brand might have a great internal engineering team that understands web, they may not understand blockchain. And I think that's where they plug in really well. Some brands are really trying to invest in having their own teams, but I think the chains, especially these lag groups, are really focused on how do we help you build this out so that it doesn't feel so challenging, you know, as a business issue. And I know in his role at Polygon Labs, he works very closely with that sort of engineering team that is part of Polygon. It also would have been interesting to sort of understand exactly how Polygon is organized, because from my outsider perspective, working with many, many people at Polygon, they do seem to be a very decentralized organization. Avery, thank you so much for this, as always. Awesome. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in, listening. We always love to hear your comments, questions, feedback, hear who you would like us to invite on to Generation C. Ryan was an incredible guest. I think maybe our highest energy guest to date. I think he gets that award. So if you like more of that, let us know. Share us with your friends. Share us with your colleagues who are interested in learning about Web3. And we'll catch you next week. Thanks, y'all.